you want to turn with me to Philippians chapter 3? It's where we'll be basing ourselves here this morning in, in Philippians 3. You know, last week, <coughs> Tina shared uh, for the first time in many months because uh, he had a, a season of burnout and he was restored. And, and so for the first time in many months, he came and, and he shared with us. And, uh, and you've heard on repeat over the last month uh, this theme of community, which God has, has really um, burdened us with. He's really placed on our hearts to, to talk about community. We've been making a concerted effort to focus on community. And that's what I want to do today again. But I want to tackle it from a different angle. I want to talk about what it means to know Christ and how that relates to community. In fact, I want to argue that in order to know Christ, we must know Christ through the Christ community. In John 17, 3, Jesus said, This is eternal life, that they may know you, there's that key word, know or knowledge, that they may know you, the only true God and the one you have sent, Jesus Christ. So Jesus is saying, this is eternal life, to know God, to know Jesus. And then he connects knowledge of God with the Christ community, because in the same chapter, in chapter 17, in the high priestly prayer, Jesus says in verse 21, may they all be one as you, Father, are in me and I am in you. Now, just a few books later on in the New Testament, Paul does the exact same thing. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 8, Paul says, I consider everything to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. But just a chapter beforehand, in chapter 2, verse 2, he says, Make my joy complete by thinking the same way, having the same love, being united in spirit, intent in one purpose. The connection between these two passages is the notion of knowing Jesus and how the community of Jesus is central to knowing Jesus. Which begs the question, generally, what do we mean when we say, I know them? What, what, do, we, what do I mean when I say, I know Nikki? What do I mean when I say, I know Elry? What do I mean when I say, I know Jeannie? And more specifically, what do we mean and what does Paul mean here when he says, I know Jesus? What do we mean when we say that term? And then the third question is, what on earth does knowing Jesus have to do with community? What's the connection here? I'm not quite seeing it. We're going to answer those questions and we're going to base ourselves here in Philippians 3, 7 to 11. So let's read that together, starting at verse 7. But everything that was gained to me, I have considered to be loss because of Jesus. More than that, I, all con I also consider everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Because of Him, I have suffered the loss of all things and consider them as dung 
so that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own from the law, but one that, uh, but one that is through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God based on faith. My goal is, not, is to know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings being conformed to His death, assuming that I will somehow reach the resurrection from among the, the dead. And all God's church said... From this passage, we see that there are three layers, three layers to knowing Jesus. And Bryn is, Bryn is laughing at the back. Last night, I messaged him and I said, hey, Bryn, I've just got to give you the slides for tomorrow, the verses for tomorrow. He said, let me guess, there's going to be three points. I always have three points. It's not me, it's just the Bible. It's just like the magic number. Three layers to knowing Jesus. The first layer is intellectual knowledge, to get fancy, cerebral knowledge. The second layer to knowing Jesus is relational knowledge. And the third layer to knowing Jesus is transformational knowledge. So let's tackle one by one, starting with the first, cerebral knowledge, intellectual knowledge. Paul says in verse 8, I consider everything to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus. Now, if we take that verse and we write it on a piece of paper, and we take that piece of paper and we go to the deepest jungles of the Amazon, where Christ has never been named, where no one has even heard of the name Jesus, and we take this piece of paper and we read it to a tribe in the heart of the Amazon, I have no doubt that their response would be, I'm sorry, the, the surpassing value of knowing who? Who's this Jesus character you're talking about? Which is why Paul begins with passing on information, data, about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. And we know this to be true because of Philippians chapter 2. More specifically, Philippians 2, 5 to 11 is the entire lens through which the book of Philippians is to be read. You cannot properly understand the book of Philippians as a whole, or more specifically Philippians 3, 7 to 11, if you do not properly understand Philippians 2, 5 to 11, which is known as the Christ hymn. It's the backdrop of the whole book. It's the paradigm of the whole book. And so I thought it would be, be good for us to, to read that, those verses here this morning. And it's important because in these verses, look out for them, we discover who Jesus is, information about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. Look at verse 5, chapter 2. Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason... God highly exalted him 
and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow in heaven on and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And once again, everybody said, Amen. It's clear the connections between chapter 2 and chapter 3. There, there are, um, I mean, just a, a very simple contrast and, and analysis of chapter 2, 5 to 11 and chapter 3, 7 to 11. You'll see very clearly there are links and ties. In fact, I took the time to put the two chapters together. Bryn, if you could put the, the picture without color. So here we have the two verses, the, the two passages put together. And, and just a very brief analysis of, the, of those two passages, you can see the connections. You can see that there's mention of, of Lord, there's mention of Christ, there's mention of God, there's mention of death, there's mention of, of, of Jesus, there's mention of humility. And so what I thought I'd do after this is just try and, and, and color the two sections where there are word correlations, whether the words are the exact same or whether themes are the exact same. And, and this is what we get. Look at the connections. It's almost as though Paul, in writing chapter 2, verse 5 to 11, after he's, he's writing chapter 3, and it's as though he's looking back to chapter 2, and he says, I'm going to grab this concept and put it right here. I'm going to grab this word, I'm going to put it right here. There are word connections. There are thematic connections that we see between the two chapters. The red represents the words are, that are, are the exact same. And the green represents the themes that are the exact same. We see the word Jesus four times, the word God five times, the word Christ three times, the word Lord two times in both passages. And the themes are similar as well. We see the, the theme of surrendering or abandoning your preferences and prerogatives it's in both passages. We see the theme of crucifixion and death. We see the theme of resurrection. It's clear that when you put these two passages side by side, there's connections. Here in chapter 2, verses 5 to 11, Paul passes on information about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. He says that Jesus is the infinitely valuable one who bears the name of Yahweh himself. And then he goes further. Despite his divinity, despite his divine status, he was willing to abandon his preferences and comforts, surrender his prerogatives and rights and his glory through incarnation, and through crucifixion, so as to serve humanity, which led to his resurrection and exaltation. Paul passes on information about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. Why does he do this? Because it's impossible to be in a relationship with someone that you know nothing about. It's impossible. I would call you crazy if you came to me after the service and said, Philippe, 
I've got a really good friend, but I know nothing about this person. I don't know their hair color. I don't know their name. I don't even know their username on their Facebook profile. I know nothing about them. I'd say, okay, that's just crazy. It's not possible to know someone that you know nothing about. The very definition of knowing someone infers that you have information about them. You know, when Priscilla and I met for the first time, it was 2011, despite we were both born in the same country, Priscilla's my wife, we were born in the same country in Brazil, and born in the same city, we have mutual friends, we have uh, friends in common, we have our family know each other, and we never met in Brazil, we actually met here in Australia, coincidentally. And when she met me, she, she was head over heels for me. She, she fell in love. She could not, she, she came in 2011, went back in 2011 or 2012. She just could not resist. She had to come back to see me in 2016, which is when our relationship kicked off. And when we started dating, and if you've been in a relationship, you know what this is like. You're just asking questions all the time. You want to know more about them. What's your favorite food? What's your middle name? Do you scrunch or fold? If you were a hero, what superhero powers would you have? And the more questions we asked, the deeper our knowledge of one another became. Cerebral, intellectual knowledge. You know who the person is and what the person has done. Now, in the same way that in order for me to Pris and Priscilla to know each other deeper, we've got to know information about one another, in the same way that that is true, it's also true that in order for us to have a deeper relationship with Jesus, or in fact, to even have an established relationship with Jesus, we've got to have information about who He is and what He's done. Intellectual knowledge. And if you don't have this layer, if you don't have this step, then you can't move on to the next steps. Second point, relational knowledge. Relational knowledge. Look at verse 8 once again. I consider everything to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. If we are to know Jesus the way that Paul describes Him here in Philippians, then we must graduate from learning information about Him intellectually to experiencing Him personally. Moving from knowledge of Him in our heads to also having knowledge of Him in our hearts. Moving beyond sheer facts, Jesus must be appropriated. Look at what Paul says. It's quite clear, friends, that in chapter 2, Paul calls Jesus the Lord. He says, Every knee will bow on earth, below the earth, and over the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord. But in chapter 3, Paul ups the ante. 
Because Jesus is no longer the Lord. Paul calls him my Lord. My Lord. Paul goes from calling Jesus the Lord in chapter 2 to my Lord in chapter 3. What does he do? He personally appropriates Christ for himself. He is my king, my savior, my friend, my brother, my Lord. Relational knowledge. Another example of this relational knowledge that we see in chapter 3 is found at the back end of verse 8. Look at what Paul says. Because of him, I have suffered the loss of all things and consider them as dung so that I may gain Christ. Now remember, chapter 2 is the backdrop for chapter 3. And in chapter 2, we learnt the the objective truths about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. And in chapter 2, Paul offers Jesus as the infinitely valuable one. But look at what Paul does here in chapter 3. He's not just out there or objectively the infinitely valuable one. He is subjectively valuable to Paul. Because of him, I have suffered the loss of all things and consider them as dung, so that I may gain Christ for myself. He's willing to renounce everything. In fact, he even considers everything as dung, human excrement, in contrast to Jesus. Let me give you another example of relational knowledge that we find here in chapter 3. Paul frames knowing Christ in chapter 3, verse 8, in relation to participation in His resurrection and crucifixion. Look at verse 10. My goal is to know Him, there it is again, those key words. My goal is to know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings being conformed to His death. Remember, chapter 2 is the backdrop to chapter 3. The Christ hymn is the lens through which we read the whole book of Philippians. The apostle has already told us about the death and resurrection of Jesus in chapter 2, verses 5 to 11. But what does he do here? He appropriates the death and resurrection of Jesus. He participates in the death and resurrection of Jesus. So he's saying that it's not just that 2,000 years ago, Jesus died on the cross. Here he's saying that I, Paul, died with Jesus on the cross 2,000 years ago. And it's not just that Jesus 2,000 years ago rose from the dead in the tomb. No, it's that I, Paul, raised with Jesus in the tomb 2,000 years ago. His death is my death and His resurrection is my resurrection. I died with Him and I raised with Him. Because I've been united to Him. Our union with Christ. I'm convinced that that union with Christ is the controlling theme of all of Paul's thought. Union with Christ. More than justification. More than faith. More than anything that Paul... If you count the amount of times that Paul says, in Christ, in his letters, you'd be astounded. 
We have been united to Christ. We have been made one with Christ. We are together with Christ. In such a way that we, there's no confusion of personhood. I don't become Christ, Christ doesn't become me. And yet we're so mystically united. That's when you can say that Jesus belongs to me and I belong to Jesus. There is an established relationship. An established relationship. Now, relationships weren't designed to just be established and not continue. When I said I do to Priscilla on the aisle, it would be crazy for me to say I do and then never relate to her ever again. In fact, the whole basis upon which I said I do was so that I could spend from that moment onward until the death, either my death or her death, we would relate every single day as husband and wife in this special union. And so when we, when we read of Paul talking about relational knowledge, he's not just talking about an established relationship, he's talking about an ongoing relationship. A daily experience, a continual aspect It's that when we've been united to Christ, we have entered into the divine dance. When you think about a dance, there is a a backward and forward motion. There is mutual love, mutual appreciation, mutual affection, synchronization. We've been united to Christ, and in that union, we've entered into the divine dance where there is the giving and receiving of heightened affection and love. Jesus pours out His love upon us, and so we pour out our love upon Him. Next day comes. Jesus pours out His love upon us, and we pour out our love upon Him. There is an established relationship and a continued relationship when it comes to this relational knowledge. And that's the second point which leads to our third and final point, transformational knowledge. What does it mean to know Jesus? Well, we know that it means knowing Him intellectually, having data, information, objective truths about who He is and what He's done. We know that it means that, that it's, it's a, a, a relational knowledge where we appropriate Christ. He is my Lord and my King and my Redeemer where we participate in His death and resurrection, where He is mine and and I am His, where we've been united and now we've entered into the divine dance with an ongoing relationship. But now we reach the deepest layer of what it means to know Jesus. Transformational knowledge. Look at verse 10. My goal is to know Him and the power of, of his resurrection. That's a key phrase. The power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, assuming that I will somehow reach the resurrection from among the dead. Friends, I need you to know this morning about the power of the resurrection. The power of the resurrection. 
the sheer, unadulterated, pure power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Here is a man who 2,000 years ago was condemned by Romans, nailed to a cross, stabbed in his side, taken down from the cross, wrapped and thrown into a tomb. And three days later, he rose from the dead. Three days later, he rose from the dead. Now, we're not just talking about any kind of resuscitation here. We read about Lazarus in the book of John also being raised from the dead. And John is drawing a contrast that Jesus' resurrection is profoundly different to Lazarus' resurrection. Because Lazarus went on to die again. Lazarus continued having an imperfect body. That's what we call resuscitation. But Jesus didn't resuscitate. Jesus resurrected. This is a fundamentally different mode of existence. This is Jesus 2.0. His glorified body is one that is suitable for eternity. His glorified body is immortal and will never be subject to the curse of death. A body which is the first of its kind in the new creation. It's no coincidence that Paul says in Colossians that Jesus is the firstborn of the new creation. Sheer power, which only God can do. The same God who at creation said, and there was, is the same God who said, and Jesus was resurrected with a glorified body, a body which would be the first of the new creation. And Paul, what he does here in chapter 3, connects the power that Christ experienced in the resurrection and the power that he experienced when he encountered Jesus. In the same way that Jesus was powerfully transformed in the resurrection, so also Paul was powerfully transformed when he saw Jesus. Friends, when we read of Paul's encounter on the Damascus Road with the risen Lord, we come to learn that Paul was never the same again. Totally changed, totally transformed new person. You guys remember the, um, that TV show, Extreme Makeover? Who remembers that, that TV show? Raise your hands. You don't remember? Just one person? Two, three, four, five? Yeah, we got a few. I was a t- this marked me, this TV show. I was a teenager when it came out, and I remember um, watching it I don't know if it was weekly or daily. I remember watching it and being marked by it. But it it needs to be said that it's a horrible TV show. Like, it's just really corny and cheesy, really, really fake. I think it's rated like 3.4 stars out of 10 on IMDb. It's just terrible. But despite how bad it is, I was marked by this show. Because this show was one where people would come in with, with, with moppy hair and and daggy clothes, and they would see a stylist, and by the end of the show, they were completely transformed to the point where they were 
unrecognizable. You, you thought that the person at the end of the show was like a, 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 an actor. It wasn't the, the first person that you saw at the beginning of the show. Just profound transformation. And I was marked by this show. It was called Extreme Makeover. Now, this is what has happened to us who have seen the glory of Jesus. We have gone through an extreme makeover. We've been totally changed. Totally transformed. But all of a sudden, we interpret reality according to the Lordship of Christ and no longer to the Lordship of self. Where all of a sudden, life has, has color and it pops and it has meaning. Instead of being meaningless or purposeless and colorless. Where when we encounter Jesus, all of a sudden, all the benefits of the world seem like a grain of rice compared to the mountain of the riches that we see in Jesus. Transformational knowledge. There are some of you in here who, when you encountered Jesus, were delivered from drugs. There are some of you in here who, when you encountered Jesus, you, you, you got a glimpse of the glory of God in the face of Christ. You were delivered from a lifestyle of anger and violence. Some of you here who were delivered and freed from a lifestyle of, of sexual promiscuity. Some of you who, who, who were freed from a life of lies. Why? Because when we see Jesus, we are completely transformed. It's not just that we know about Him. It's not just that we appropriate Him for ourselves. It's that we are transformed by Him. This is what it means to know Jesus. But it's not just any old transformation that we go through. It's not just any old change that we go through, friends. This is the type of transformation where the one being transformed starts to look like the one who's doing the transformation. Th this is the type of makeover where the one receiving the makeover begins to look like the one doing the makeover, his designer. This is the type of transformative experience where we are not just we are not just transformed by Christ but we are molded and shaped to look like Christ. You guys ever heard that phrase we become what we behold. We become what we behold. That which we admire we inevitably embody. And that's because we are mimes. We were designed by God to copycat, to mimic, to emulate others. And, and I always knew this instinctively. I always knew that, that, that it's just inbuilt into the human DNA. We're hardwired to copy others. I knew, I, I knew this instinctively. That it's not a matter of if you copy others, you can take it to the bank that you do. It's just a matter of whether the one that you're copying is a good example or a bad example. That's the bigger question. 
But I, I knew this instinctively. But this idea of we become what we behold took on a whole new meaning when two big things happened in my life. Number one, when I got married. And number two, when I had my daughter Esther. Priscilla and I got married three years ago, and it is eerily bizarre how much of each, each other's mannerisms we start to adopt. I mean, I'm starting to dance like her. Babe, can you show us some dance moves? No, nah, I'm not going to show you. You know, we're all about participation in the church. Why? Because we become what we behold. Now, three, no, five, six months ago, I had my little daughter, Esther, and she is the cutest thing in the world. I love this little girl. And, uh, and from the first few weeks, just to try and get her to smile or to try and get her to laugh, I started acting cheeky by poking my tongue out. And so I started poking my tongue out. And before I knew it, a few weeks and a few months had passed, and I was still poking my tongue out on a daily basis, but it wasn't just for like, a, it wasn't like a quick poke of the tongue. It was like a poking of the tongue for like a whole minute, right? And so we woke up one day to this. If we can play the video, Bryn. This is little Esther. And if you could turn the sound up, I think there's some sound. She just doesn't stop. <laughs> and she's cheekily smiling too. <laughs> she doesn't stop. She keeps poking her tongue out. <laughs> Alright, we can we can stop there. I think you get the point. This video goes for like a minute or two. And she's doing the same thing over and over and over and over again. You get my point. You get my point. We become what we behold. Esther sees me every day poking my tongue out. What is she going to do? She's going to poke her tongue out. Now, you could, you could deduce or you could assume that that's just babies being babies. But it's highly unlikely. Because I've been poking my tongue out with her every single morning every single day, and she is, as she admires me, embodying that which she admires. And in the same way that Esther copies her daddy, we copy Jesus. We imitate Jesus. We have not only been transformed by Him, we've been transformed to look like Him. And so we see the type of change that happens in us is ethical. It's an ethical change. We have a new heart. We're a new person. We start to think differently, talk differently, walk differently. And we see this in the life of Paul. Before his encounter with Christ on the Damascus Road, what does Paul say that he did? He persecuted the church. He says in chapter 3, verse 6, I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. 
And yet this is the same Paul who in chapter 1, verses 21 to 25, says that he prefers to be with Jesus, but for the sake of the church, he keeps serving them for their joy. Laboring and laboring and laboring, sacrificing himself day in and day out with tears so as to serve others. Friends, this isn't, this isn't a, a, a random selection of an ethical model from among many. It's not like Paul closed his eyes and he said, you know what, Greeks, give me your, give me your ethical philosophies. Romans, give me your ethical approach to life. You know, Jews, give me your ethical, and I'm just going to randomly and arbitrarily pick one. This is not a random selection of an ethical model from among many. This is Paul adopting the life of Christ as a model for his own. The same Jesus who sacrificially served humanity by becoming a human and dying on the cross is the one who transformed Paul so that Paul would now sacrificially lay his life down to serve the church. Cerebral, intellectual knowledge leads to relational knowledge, which leads to transformational knowledge. And it's not just that we have an ethical transformation. This is, to me, the most amazing part. It's not just that we've been changed on the inside. It's that our exterior will one day reflect our interior. That in this age, there is a change of heart, but in the next age, we will all if we are in Christ, reflect Christ and His glorified body. We will have a body that endures eternity like His. We will have a body that will not be subject to sin and death like His. Our interior will finally, after all these years, reflect, be reflected by our exterior. So we see, friends, that Knowing Christ is the experience of gaining intellectual knowledge about Christ, which leads to commencing a relationship with Him, which continues on a daily basis, which leads to being transformed by Him to reflect His attitudes and actions. This is what it means to know Christ. But the question remains, what on earth does this have to do with community? Philippians 3.17, Paul gives us the answer. He says, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. You know, sometimes we can learn just as much about what someone doesn't say as they do about what they do say. And notice that Paul doesn't here say, just imitate Jesus. He could have very well said that. But what does he say instead? Imitate me. And imitate those around you who act like me. When he says, keep your eyes on those who walk according to our example, he assumes that those he's writing to are in community that they rub shoulders with one another, that they're in each other's pockets, they're in each other's lives. And Paul's statement here goes deeper than just summoning the Philippian Christians to be like him. 
He's saying that we cannot properly grow in Christ's likeness without a living example set before us in community. We are mimics. We are mimes. We are copycats. And how else can we mimic the attitude of Christ unless we have a living example of others doing so in the community? How else can I become like Jesus unless I'm around those who are like Jesus? And so he's saying that community, the church, the body of Christ is essential to Christ's likeness because it's in the body of Christ that we see the character of Christ on display for us to be able to embody. It's when I see Don and Lillian attending every prayer meeting at 6.30 in the morning where I'm challenged to take prayer more seriously. It's when I see Hannah singing her heart out with everything that she's got that I'm inspired to worship Jesus with my hands, to jump, to dance as though he's in the very room. It's when I see Wendy giving herself. You guys don't know what Wendy does behind the scenes. She gives all of herself, everything that she has to offer in serving you and in serving me. And when I see that, I'm challenged to be more like her and to serve the church self-sacrificially. It's when I see Pauline and Brian masterfully raising their kids in the way of the Lord that I'm then inspired to raise my little Esther in the way of the Lord. Why? Because we become what we behold. We are copycats. We are mimes. We are imitators. And we need a living example before us of Christ's likeness in order for us to become like Christ. And where else do we find that but in the church, in community? Christ is embodied by His people. And you're not able to imitate Him unless you're in fellowship with His hands and feet. Unless you're rubbing shoulders with them regularly enough to be able to see how they think, how they react, how they walk, how they talk, how they behave. If you're not around them, you can't be like them. And if you can't become like them, then that means that you're truncated from becoming like Jesus. You want to know Jesus intellectually, relationally. You want to know Jesus transformationally. Then, friends, you've got to get to know his bride. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up. And let's all stand. Close our eyes. And in reflection of what Paul has to say to us here in, in Philippians 3, let's think this through. Firstly, I want to ask if you're here today and you don't know Jesus in the three ways that we see Paul describing, 
if you haven't caught a glimpse of Him, if you haven't seen His beauty, His glory, if you haven't appropriated His infinite value for yourself, if you're stuck in a colorless world, unchanged, a slave to your sin, then let me encourage you in this very moment to just look to Jesus. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. To look to the hills where your help comes from, comes from the Lord. Surrender to Him this very moment. Trust in Him this very moment. Yield to Him. And if you're here and you know Jesus, I want to encourage you to think about the community project of Christ as the place where we come to know Him. It's the place where we're transformed by Him, where we come to look like Him. As those who know Jesus and have been change to look like Him, we rub shoulders with them and we live with them and we see them on a weekly basis. We cannot help but imitate them and adopt the self-sacrificial service ethos or lifestyle of Jesus. Lord, we thank you for your church. No matter how many times the church has hurt us, no no matter how many times the church has bruised us, this is your body. This is your bride. And she is a work in progress. Lord, I pray that you will touch each and every single heart here particularly those who have grown embittered towards the church. Lord, your church is your precious one. So much so, Lord, that when Paul encountered you on the road to Damascus, he didn't say, Paul, why are you persecuting the church? He said, no, Paul, why are you persecuting me? Because, Lord, you identify with your people. Community, Lord, help us to see the importance of it and help us to do it well. We thank you, Lord, for your goodness and your kindness towards us and how you're forming this community as a people of Jesus Christ, as a community in Jesus Christ, to look more like Jesus Christ. We pray this and we thank you in Jesus' name.